This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. By most accounts, the mood at this year's World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, was a little bit more tame than it has been in recent years. Among the top issues was the urgency of climate change, the economic slowdown in countries like China, as well as global inequality. Davos was also notable for who was not there this year. President Trump was dealing with the partial government shutdown. British Prime Minister Theresa May obviously dealing with the Brexit. French uh, President Emmanuel Macron has the yellow vest protest still going on. Those absences uh, did, though, give a spotlight to other world leaders, including New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, uh, Ardern, excuse me, who, among other things, had a joint appearance with Britain's Prince William to discuss mental health. With more on this year's uh, conference, we are joined here in studio by Regina Abrami, who is director of the global program at the Lauder Institute of Management and International Studies here at the Wharton School. She's also a senior lecturer of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania. Also with us on the phone, Nina Hall, who's an assistant professor of international relations at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. Regina, good to see you. Thank you for coming in. Thanks so much. Nina, great to have you with us today. Great to be there. And sorry, I can't be there in person. Thank you, though, for for joining us today. Uh, So I guess, Regina, is that assessment that we give kind of a fair one that there were some important topics being brought forth? But again, when you don't have some of the most important leaders of the world, it may lose a little something. You know, it may lose a little something, but but it also gained a lot, okay. which is it opened a, it opened the space for I'd call the Davos of value change, right? So the, okay. the 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 topics that were talked about: mental health, inequality, climate change, and the people that were allowed to have voice on those issues, as well as the future of work, um, probably would not have happened had those other individuals been here, because oftentimes right. they define the agenda. So, so a benefit I, to a degree. I I think so. I think so. I think that um, I think that we've we are we are getting. Um, a view of globalization that is saying let's reflect a bit more on what it actually means when globalism and the globalization of supply chains has succeeded such that the work of politics has gotten way more complicated. It, it, it suggests we need to rethink the rules, and that's right. not—that's never a bad thing. Nina, your thoughts? Yeah, I'd say two things on that. Firstly, there were still a lot of heads of state there, although right. you're completely right to point out many of the big ones weren't there. So we had, you know, heads of state from South Africa, Vietnam, uh, including my own country, New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, who's been mentioned. Uh, so it's worth mentioning that Davos, secondly, has always been a forum for businesses, and there are a lot of businesses there in their thousands, as well as NGOs and civil society leaders. And I think sometimes in the kind of big coverage of, you know, the major leaders, we lose sight of the fact that thousands go to Davos to, to do their business, uh, and I assume managed to do that successfully this year with or without Trump. And secondly, that I think some NGOs have become extremely strategic uh, and effective at using Davos as a platform, and I would highlight Oxfam here. Now, Oxfam for the last few years, the day before the, of, of, of Davos launches a global inequality report. Right. And that report has what they like to call killer statistics, statistics that really get us to think. So this year they told us that about 26 of the world's richest billionaires own the same amount of wealth as half the world's population. Now, that statistic really took off. And as it does every year, it kind of sets the tone. 
And so inequality became and has become a major issue for global politics. I would say not only, I mean, because of Oxfam, there are obviously others, the work of Piketty, the work of many other academics putting it out there, but in trying to get the agenda and set it at early time at Davos. And I think it's really interesting, and we can go into that in more and more depth, what some of the solutions that were debated of how we address that inequality. Well, and specifically on that issue, Nina, I think there's a perception, and maybe uh, us as members of the media here in the United States, we may fall into this trap, is that we think of this at, at times as a U.S. problem. Whereas, as you have just laid out, there are so many elements of inequality that are on the global scale. Completely. I mean, there's global inequalities between countries and even in countries like New Zealand, where people might think that's a nice, prosperous country, you know, down at the bottom of the Pacific where everything's happy and you can just go and have your nice holiday and lap up some sun while it's winter in Europe or right. in, in North America. But in fact, there are, there are huge problems of inequality, uh, even in a country like New Zealand that, that uh, Jacinda Ardern is trying to tackle. Yeah, I would I would add to that. I mean, if we look again, why why weren't the 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 the, the top of the food chain in terms of global leaders there? Um, Brexit, right? Yellow vest protests in France, um, obviously in the United States. What's going on with the China trade issue, but also the government shutdown. So if you look at all of those issues, it actually does also put a spotlight on business and and what it needs to do. And so one of the big solutions, of course, is what can businesses do to try to address inequality. And you are starting to see not just more and more local governments, and I would use our own state of Pennsylvania here. But mm. even companies talking about what should be the minimum wage, what is a decent wage. And these right. conversations are no longer being forked over to, to um, the central government to solve because ultimately it's it's the day-to-day of doing business that's going to ultimately solve many of these issues. Well, and I think in many cases when you're talking about trying to solve some of these issues, it's almost better to not have the government involved <laughs> to a degree because businesses may be able to make uh, a, a greater effect early on in the process and then – show the, the, the path that's needed and then bring it to government and hopefully they will respond. Yeah, you're going to vote for Howard Schultz. <laughs> I, I mean, I would say no that I there. would say that business would certainly want you to think that. I do think that when you look at what's happening with the protest today, nonetheless, if we turn to the citizenry, their appeal and that they're out on the streets basically insisting that governments that they've elected are nonetheless held accountable for the promises they've made. So. And if I can Nina, yep. jump in, I think there's another interesting angle. Just today I saw a video that went viral, and it was on exactly this point of inequality in is it business and taxes, uh, sorry, businesses or governments that should be responsible. Uh, and really what it came down to was a historian, Rutger Bergman, saying, look, we need to talk about taxation. You know, Davos often has the world's industrial leaders saying, how do we, how do we respond to these social challenges that we're facing. Right. It has governments saying, how do we respond? And the answer that a lot of academics have been putting forward is taxation. We need to start talking about more progressive taxation. And this was followed up by Oxfam International's director uh, also pointing out that, you know, you might have uh, lower unemployment in the U.S., but one of the challenges is that even with low unemployment, you can still have people leading very precarious lives. And in addition, not having jobs that give them any dignity, having to do, you know, really hard work in conditions that is just really unpleasant. So I think, to me, what I saw at Davos was really some hard conversations about, okay, it's all very well for governments to say, we'll give some more and we'll donate more to charity, but actually, maybe we need to face the hard facts, and some of it may actually about increasing taxes. 
So take us into, and you mentioned, and you are originally from New Zealand, uh, take us into the, the period of time that, that your country's prime minister had in Davos, and, and we mentioned about having the opportunity to meet with Prince William and, and talk about mental health, about the week that, that she had and being able to really push forward some initiatives that I assume partly may already be in play in New Zealand, but, but also things that she may want to bring back to New Zealand. Sure. I'd be very happy to talk about it. So Susan Andern's uh, week in Europe was uh, around Davos. She also spent time, it's worth noting, in the UK, so meeting with May to talk about uh, New Zealand businesses' access to, to, to Britain, uh, Britain, as well as in Brussels to talk about a New Zealand-EU trade agreement. But I think the sort of headline of what she wanted to get out of Davos was to emphasise her government's new approach to dealing with uh, inequality and to thinking about how to run uh, our economy. And one of the things the New Zealand government's looking to do is to change the indicators, to move away from GDP. And she spoke about this at Davos. And she said what countries need to do, and she sees New Zealand as, as a role model in this in many ways, is to think about how we measure our economy in a much more holistic sense. And this for her, is going to be translated into the well-being budget, which will come out in May uh, with the work of Grant Robinson, her uh, Minister of Finance. And it will have a series of indicators that aren't just about the economic turnover, but also about mental health, about child poverty, an issue that's very big in New Zealand. So the well-being budget is one, one way that she's looking to advance it. The second would be on climate change, where the New Zealand government is working very hard to try and become... Uh, carbon, to pass a carbon neutral bill uh, that will happen later this year. And there the hope is to, as the bill suggests, make New Zealand carbon neutral to reduce our uh, carbon emissions, which a lot come from agriculture in the New Zealand case. So she's also thinking about mental health, uh, another big issue. But I would say that the, the government under Jacinda Ardern is really trying to provide a role model on the international stage of how you can think differently about some of these challenges and take action. Regina? Uh, you know, I, I listening to your description, I, I can't help but think I, I want to move to New Zealand because it <laughs> sounds marvelous. And I'm now understanding why there is concern with all so many people wanting to actually move to New Zealand. Uh, but, I, but I'd also caution that the challenge of, of, of executing on something like this is having it taken at the larger, at the larger country level. Sure. So at the end yeah. of the day, even with climate change, there stands the United States, right? And, right. and China as and the China, two yeah. largest countries and markets where even as much as China has not stood down around climate issues. It's actually stood up far more than the U.S. of late. Um, nonetheless, unless you get these major polluters and, and, and uh, countries to, to be part of that dialogue, even changing how we're doing the accounting, as it were, whether it's green GDP, wellness budgets, and the like, um, it, it ends up not, I think, having that, that, sh that global shift that we need to see. Right. And so, you know, I would, I would kind of say that it, it, it sounds wonderful, but I'd caution that um, really, you know, it, it's an issue about who gets to set the standards, and that's where China comes in. So China had a very big presence there. One somewhat um, wagging a finger at the United States and yep. saying we want a level playing field, but I think very much as well saying that we're going to be part of setting the standards for what are global institutions of international cooperation, but also um, even things around technology and which, the new digital era. Which is a unique change, I, I think, when you think about China and its history as a communist country and the fact that President Xi really wants to try and open some of the doors. Now, obviously, there are, there are still a lot of concerns that you have to deal with with the with the with the government and the issues of intellectual property and and, and so like but if 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 he and some of the companies that were there in Davos 
really want to push forward. One, they want to open the doors to to other businesses. But two, they in terms of climate change, they have such a long way to go from where they were to truly be a leader in, in terms of affecting climate change on a global uh, on a global scope, Regina. I mean, they may because obviously they're just coming out of it and are still in a period of rapid industrialization. But I would say that they have. Um, moved exponentially faster than the United States sure. has if we're yeah. looking at it from a takeoff period of really yeah. 1978 to where we are today in China's willingness to um, have dialogue on these issues as well as to put in place um, certain constraints. I mean, we all very well remember the China Olympics where suddenly the skies of Beijing were bright and blue. So yeah. it's not yeah. that they don't have an ability to attend to it. It's under what conditions. I would, you know, I would say that rather, um, you know, rather than, than necessarily focusing on them letting wanting companies into their own market, because I'm not so clear that that playing field is so level at this point and perhaps in the near future. But but rather what they're trying to say is that on the global stage, they want to be able to set standards and not necessarily be subjected to the rules of today in terms of IMF and World Bank rules. And that is the real game changer. I mean, just think, 2017, we had Xi Jinping at Davos celebrating yeah. and speaking about the importance of globalization, yep. which was concurrent with the election of Trump. I mean, it was somewhat um, uh, an alternate future for, right. for many of us. Right. And and I think we've continued to see that trend develop. So I, China, he's op- it's opened a door for China to actually speak on the global stage on uh, with a level of credibility perhaps it didn't have before. How much do you think it, it is already happening or can continue to advance the push for globalization, but, but using the want from climate change to really make effective change in that area that can improve globalization on a grand scale because obviously right now nationalism is 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 a topic that is used it's here in the United States mm-hmm. and, and other countries as well if you can pair the want to change the climate with building further globalization whether it be on the business side or or uh, whether it be you know government relations between countries making things better it's just good sense from a business perspective to be an environmentalist. I mean, any, particularly on the production side, I mean, recycling wastewaters, uh, uh, reuse uh, um, uh, is the way forward. And you're starting to, see, you've certainly seen that in China, um, and, you've, and you've, you've seen their need for it with obviously globalization of supply chains. And many U.S. firms that are, are part of these global supply chains have been party to that as well right. in terms of recycling, um, wastewater treatment, elimination of certain high polluting industries. So um, China as well, if we're looking at wind power, solar, they are the they are the reason why, at least for solar energy, I mean, it's almost a grid parity with, with more conventional energy forms. And it's because of their ability to produce it at a price you wouldn't see otherwise. Nina, so, so it's important. Nina, your thoughts? Yeah, I definitely agree that acting on climate change is in the best interest of everyone, whether it be businesses, whether it be civil society, whether it be governments. To give you another example from Jacinda Ardern, she made a very strong point that you don't have to cede power by acting on climate change. She was speaking in her position as a head of state, and I think for many heads of state, they might see the arguments, but they're sort of reluctant. They know that there are strong lobbyists and other vested interests that don't want them to take action to set out more regulation because it might hurt those particular businesses. And she's saying, look, there's a lot to gain from taking action on climate change, particularly in the long term. I'm going to go back for a second, Nina, if I can, because I think you touched on it briefly. But the the issue of mental health, and obviously it's it's something that your prime minister feels very passionate about. How significant of an issue is that in New Zealand? And I say that with with the perspective of knowing that we understand here in the U.S. about how significant of a problem it is, yet we still don't have enough action to really tackle it. Sure. So New Zealand which is a bit of a mystery for many, has a very one of the highest youth 
suicide rates. Uh, we have, and this is something that the Prime Minister talked to, almost everyone, she said, including people in her cabinet, will know someone who has committed suicide. We also know from various international reports that one in four people will experience mental illness in their lives and that some people have put the cost of that the global economy about US $6 trillion by 2030. So it's a, it's a massive issue for, for societies. Uh, and what this government is tr has started to do is to do a, a commission and to look and listen to a lot of the different communities and actors working in mental health, and they're still in the deliberation process. It's actually not clear what exactly the government's suggestions are going to be. They're certainly going to look to try and address mental health much more uh, throughout our, our health system because I think so often it's easier to focus on, you know, a broken leg or a broken sure. arm, and it's much harder to think through, well, how do you deal with somebody who has severe depression or anxiety? Uh, and it's certainly a priority for the government. But the jury is yet out. Uh, if you talk to people like I did when I was back in New Zealand who work in the mental health sector, they're certainly supportive of the government's uh, rhetoric, but waiting to see what the actual policies will be. But the other part to it, Regina, is the fact that mental health is one part of several parts of uh, of the healthcare sector right now, which are so important that need to be addressed right now. Obviously, mental health is a big thing here in the United States. The opioid crisis, mm -hmm. and and that is again has elements that that are outside the country uh, as well. And these are all when you have the people, the types of people that are in Davos. These are the people that have the chance, I think, to really start to affect change if there's enough will. Well, it's a first of all, I think it's about talking about it. So, so I again say hats off to um, to Jacinda Ardern for putting it on the table there. Prince William and his brother, of course, had been speaking of it earlier. So, getting people at that level to speak about it obviously matters. But the next part of it is to your mentioning around health health crisis and health policies. What's going to be done? I mean, the reason it's not spoken about is because there is an implicit bias against yeah. someone when they're identified with mental health issues, whether at the employment level, whether there's government funding. Uh, certainly in the U.S. with the opioid crisis, and really in many cases, a lot of this is not just that someone broke their leg and they were given oxy. There's a lot of cases where it's dual diagnosis issues, and they're not able to get the mental health treatment they need to attend to that problem in, you know, above all else. And um, this is going to be front and center in the U.S. election. I think we're already starting to see it, where um, the, the whole idea of single-payer systems, the whole idea of you know, Medicare for everyone, this is going to be the Democratic platform, and they're going to be duking it out, I think, over the next year and a half. But that that is going to be top and center, because it, it is something that the Republicans have comfortably talked about, where they didn't in the past, and um, something that um, the, the Democrats will slam them for saying they haven't done enough yet on. So we'll see it. We are joined here in studio by Regina Abrami from here at the Wharton School in the University of Pennsylvania on the phone with Nina Hall from Johns Hopkins University. We're recapping what occurred at Davos in Switzerland uh, last week at the World Economic Forum. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y 21. Going back to the, to, to the climate issue, Nina, for a second, what about uh, the role of NGOs and climate activists that I, 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 I believe it was a, a fairly significant part and, and showed up in, in Davos quite a bit uh, last week. Yeah, well, one of the things with Davos is because of its uh, location, it's quite isolated and very difficult to get to unless you have an official pass. So uh, many of the activists that you might expect outside the Climate Change Summit, say the one that we had in Paris or in Katowice, just can't get there on the huge numbers. And you'll, you'll notice that, that there are never big photos outside Davos of thousands of people protesting because they just can't get access. However, inside the room, probably the most remarkable young activist was a 16-year-old, Greta Thunberg. 
she travelled by train from Sweden, mm. and she's been striking every Friday for the last few mm. months to say her government needs to do more on climate change. Now, this is the Swedish government, we should remember, which is already, you know, compared to some, I would probably argue uh, a little bit more uh, proactive around climate change. And what's remarkable is that it's not just her. She's been joined increasingly by other high schoolers all around the world in Sweden. I happened to be in Berlin last Friday, and there was a Berlin protest of high schoolers taken to the streets. So I think that's one really good example of how uh, the climate protest is is taking off in the younger generation. And she was very strong to business leaders. She actually said to them, I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic and act as if the house was on fire. She wants action now, and she's she's going to do all it takes to, to get it. I guess the question is, and Nina, are there enough of those people that are willing to go to that length right now around the globe? I think there's a huge number of people who feel incredibly concerned about climate change. Uh, the challenge, of course, is that our economies, as you know, many of your other speakers, I'm sure, and Regina can also mention, uh, attest to, are set up in such a way that has made it very difficult for many of those economies to change. There's no reason why they can't. It just takes a good bit of innovation uh, and a strong commitment. Because as we see in places like Germany, the car industry is very reluctant to shift away from the way that is operated over time. So that even a country like Germany, which on the international stage, you'll hear Merkel saying really strong things about action on climate change. Domestically, record isn't so good. And I think an interesting piece on that is, again, looking back to China, which is if we look at the whole issue around climate change, in many cases we're talking as well about pollution. And yeah. there's no government official that can come up seriously, whether it's democratic regime or not, and say, I'm for pollution. Yeah. And so even in the case of China, a lot of those um, uh, big leaps around uh, climate change uh, and improvements in environmental matters was the fact that you were Chinese protesters, speaking about particularly factory waste. But all governments fear these kinds of young activists, but even older activists, because it, it, it does two things. It points out the regulatory incapacities of a government. Yeah. Um, there's no stance one can take to it except to either negate science, which is I think what we're somewhat dealing with here, um, or, or appearing to be for pollution, and you can't be. So I think we're at a very interesting moment right now, not just about globalization, but about what is the purpose of government. And political officials have to have an answer for that. Why are you there? Why are you in your role? Whether you are elected or not, what is your purpose? And I think that's why Davis was a little quiet this year, and I think that's why some folks decided just not to go. Nina, I think if you're going to ask that question, what, what is the role of politicians these days, at least right now, you might want to ask that of people outside the United States at this point because of kind of the divide that we have in Washington, D.C. at this point. Sure. I mean, I think a lot of countries, though, are facing similar challenges. I mean, that was part of the reason with what you started off today's discussion on that many didn't go to Davos yeah. was because they're facing huge challenges internally. I mean, you just need to look at Theresa May and what's on her agenda for the next few months. Who knows? Maybe it's on the agenda for the next few years trying to sort out Brexit. Um, and I do think that, in fact, interestingly, the theme at Davos was actually to deal with some of the challenges of populism and nationalism, which you can see also in Italy, where I'm based. Uh, equally in Germany, and the EU elections are coming up in May. So sure. Huge conversation about that in many other countries. It's not just the U.S. where there's a real sense of crisis within government. Great having you both with us today. Regina, nice to see you again. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Nina, thank, thank, you, for you, your, thank you very much for your time today.
Great to talk with you all. Thank, Thank you. Much. Thank you. Regina Abrami from here at the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School, Nina Hall, joining us from Johns Hopkins University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.